Hello friends. Thanks so much for tuning in with me live here on Instagram today. I am your self-care keto coach, Jess, and I help women lose weight with a keto diet and a self-care mindset. Today, we are actually going to be talking about infertility. So have you ever struggled with infertility or has somebody that you know struggled with infertility? It is such a common issue today that anybody would be hard pressed to say, no, I don't know anybody that has ever struggled with this. So I actually have a really special guest that I'm going to be bringing on here today, and um, her name is Temple Stewart. She is awesome. You should follow her. Ketogenic.nutritionist on Instagram, and she is actually going to be sharing with us her story of how following a ketogenic diet actually helped her to heal her body and get pregnant naturally. Hey, Temple. Hey, Jess. How are you? I am great. How are you doing today? I'm doing really good. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited about this. It's going to be me fun. Me too. Me too. I am like so psyched that you were able to do this today because I've been following you for a while and I just have to say how much I love what you're doing. I love your content. You're so fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, no, I, I always love getting on here and spreading the word about keto and fertility because I hate seeing people struggle and it's a real thing and even with weight loss. So um, yeah. I'm excited to chat about it for sure. Yeah, I have to say one of the things that I like the most about you is that you don't skirt around stuff like uh, when it comes to <laughs> just like the fact that um, there's so much shaming going on nowadays with people who want to lose weight, like we're shaming people for being overweight, and then we're shaming people for wanting to lose weight. And it's just so much shame all around. And I've listened to your content on, you know, different podcasts and everything. And I, I love how you're so straightforward about the fact like, no, I actually feel like I can't just tell people it's okay to be obese. Like it, yeah. it's not okay. Like health at every size. Absolutely. And it's not about the size, but you're sometimes your size is causing issues like actual yeah. health issues that are impacting your life. And you know, there's so much to say, but infertility can actually be one of those things, right? Oh, a hundred percent. And I, I couldn't agree more about the shaming piece. And, um, I would say this is probably one of the, the biggest areas that I get a lot of, I would say trolling online, yeah. uh, you know, people, um, saying, you know, telling people restrictive diets are going to all this and that. So I agree with what you said. And, um, there is risk that comes with obesity and there's risk that comes with inflammation and insulin resistance. And I think that it's only fair and I would not be loving people well if I didn't tell them the truth. Right. And so that's my goal. Yes, absolutely. And there's so many different ways to approach it. Like, you know, telling the truth, it's sometimes it depends on how you say things like, yeah, you want to give people, um, tools that empower them to be able yeah. to reach their goals. And if we're just shaming people who are out there trying to empower people with good information, there's way too much of that going on. Great. So, yeah. Yeah. So would you start by sharing a little bit about your story? How did you get into keto in the first yeah. place? And then also share, share your story. Like what type of health struggles have you gone through and how has keto helped you um, heal? Yeah. So I guess my health really started. Um, first of all, I really noticed something was was going wrong with me when I was in college. So I played uh, soccer in college and I never had a period. So I went, uh, I mean, years as a, as a college student and I never had a period and all the doctors and I knew something was hormonally wrong, right? I just yeah. felt it. I had very oily skin. I would get cystic acne. Some mm. of the typical PCOS symptoms that I didn't know were PCOS symptoms. And I would have these things and I knew, like I said, I knew something was hormonally wrong and I would go to these doctors and they would all tell me, Hey, you're a college athlete. Like you're, you know, running for 90 minutes, you're running miles, lifting weights. Like it's pretty normal not to have a period. And I can always remember thinking, ah, this doesn't feel right. Like I'm a female, like this is a, one of the biggest health indicators of a woman's body is, is cycling. And so that's when I knew something was off. But then when things really started to take a, a, a downward spiral is when I was in my like residency as a dietitian. Um, I would, did my, uh, my internship here in Florida at a veterans affairs hospital working with um, all, you know, uh, veterans. And I was working um, and I was just getting so tired. And, and at, that, at that time, I had just got married and still wasn't cycling. And so. So like kind of a long story short, I started to go try to figure out what was going on. 
and I was kind of getting, oh, you know, we don't really know. We need to check this hormone and that hormone and all this. And so long story short, I got diagnosed with PCOS and Hashimoto's in the same day. And so many people don't know, but PCOS and Hashimoto's actually go hand in hand. So a lot of times women with thyroid issues have PCOS and vice versa. And so um, I remember that just being super devastating to me. Like I have this PCOS. I remember my OBGYN looking me straight in the face, telling me you're probably not going to get pregnant. So when you want to get pregnant, just come back and I'll, we'll go ahead and start like some of the Clomid and some of the other things that you can do before IVF. And I remember thinking, that's all you have for me? Like, oh, and birth control and metformin, of course, are the other mm -hmm. two things that they throw at PCOS women. And I, like I said, I remember thinking, that's it? Like, you, you just tell me I have this and there's no other treatment. And no, there's no other treatment. Just take your birth control and you'll be fine. Well, I am, that is not the answer for my personality. And no. so I started to dig and I was like, you know, there's got to be something like, why did this happen? There was no answers. And then what can I do about it? And the couple things I, I came across first, which anyone watching, I recommend you absolutely read The Obesity Code by Dr. Fung. And um, yeah. I dove into his work and started learning about insulin resistance. And I started learning that my PCOS condition um, was from insulin and inflammation, essentially. And so um, at that time, I was a dietitian at a VA hospital and I started thinking, man, I'm learning all about insulin and inflammation. Why am I telling type two diabetics that they need to eat whole grains and beans and bread and all this other stuff? And so I started really like, I just went down the deepest, darkest rabbit hole of, of, of essentially insulin, which led me to Dr. Bickman and Ken Berry and all these incredible smart people. And, um, then I, Verda Health, which are you familiar with Verda Health? Yeah. They yeah. did a research study. So at this identical times, I'm going through my own PCOS struggle and I'm on keto and I'm learning about insulin resistance. Verda Health does a study at the hospital with my veterans and I'm watching people literally reverse type 2 diabetes, get off all blood pressure medications, get off all uh, diabetes medications. I'm watching women get pregnant with PCOS. Mind you, I'm still yeah. going through my own journey. And I was like, I have learned everything wrong. And if I don't start using this with my clients, I'm not, I'm doing people a disservice. So a long story short, I got into keto through Verda Health doing a study at the hospital I was working with. And I'm so glad they did because they just supported everything that I was currently doing with my own journey. And I essentially healed my PCOS. I'm no, no longer clinically diagnosable with PCOS, which is wow. something doctors won't tell you at all is, Hey, you've got PCOS for life. If I walked into a new OBGYN, they would never have known. And so, wow. um, there's hope and I got pregnant naturally. Uh, I have a little keto baby baby that's mm -hmm. nine months old and you know, um, I'm rambling, uh, but there's a lot of hope out there. And I think that yeah. that's really important to know that PCOS is absolutely reversible, especially if it's insulin resistance related or inflammation related. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. And man, if that's not a God thing, I don't know what is that all of a sudden Verta Health yeah. comes and does it at your exact hospital. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, and I look back and I see God's hand in all of it, just like you're a dietitian. I'm already a black sheep in the community because no one, it's all, you know, diet culture kind of like no one wants to actually prescribe nutrition. There's a lot of great dietitians out there, but it's a little bit, keto is not necessarily warm and friendly in that uh, population. Yeah. But yeah, God had his hand on the whole thing. And um, I think that's a part of my testimony, but you're right. You're completely right. Yeah, that, that is such a cool story. So tell us, like, to explain it, like, as simply as possible, how does keto actually help to heal your hormones? Like, what is the scientific mechanism happening behind the scenes there? Like, how is the food actually influencing your hormones? Yes, great question. So, and when I talk about PCOS being reversed by keto, I'm talking about, so there's four types of PCOS. I'm specifically talking about uh, PCOS related to insulin resistance, which is over like 75 to 80% of most people's PCOS. So that's the vast majority of people that have PCOS. I'm all, also talking about PCOS related to inflammation. So the way that it works is essentially insulin throws off everything down line. So it, it, when you have an issue with insulin, you're almost always going to have an issue with uh, androgens, which is very common in PCOS, which causes the, the facial hair and the oily skin and a lot of those issues. Um, 
But when insulin goes haywire and you become insulin resistant, hormones just go a little bit wacky. And so essentially that's what's happening in PCOS is you become insulin resistant, which throws off your whole ovulatory cycle, which is way complicated, but it messes with uh, testosterone it messes with DHEA and all the other androgens. And um, it can cause you essentially not to ovulate. And so with keto, we all know what, well, we don't, maybe not all know, but when you remove carbohydrates, that's the biggest, one of the biggest sources of insulin resistance is you eat carbs, your blood sugar elevates and so does insulin to take care of that elevation in blood sugar. When you constantly do that, your body becomes insulin resistant. And that's what, again, down the line throws off the hormones. That's why women with PCOS are, have a crazy risk for getting type 2 diabetes, have a lot of problems down line, all related to insulin resistance. So when we remove carbohydrates, those breads, pastas, sugars, starches, all of that, then we take down insulin, which works to heal the hormones that are like down the river. Essentially, your androgens will get lower, estrogen and progesterone have a chance to, to work correctly, um, and even testosterone. So essentially, we focus on that one thing. And I also should add to, it's important that we do keto correctly, because a lot of women with PCOS have inflammation. And if you do keto with what I would say dirty keto when you go and you eat, you know, rebel, not rebel, I shouldn't have thrown out a brand, but keto <laughs> ice creams and, you know, packaged keto foods all the time, you can cause inflammation. So doing keto correctly can absolutely reverse PCOS. So I hope that answered your question. Did that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. So PCOS definitely can um, influence fertility, right? So can people be struggling with fertility, even if they've never been diagnosed with PCOS or Hashimoto's or things like this? Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a lot of times women have no idea. And yeah. one common myth about PCOS is that you have to be overweight. And a lot right. of people are like, oh, I, I may have one PCOS symptom, but I'm not really sure, but they're still struggling to get pregnant. Absolutely. PCOS is the most common cause of infertility. And so yeah. you definitely want to have that ruled out before you start investigating. AHA could be a problem too. So there's a lot of things, but one thing people don't understand with insulin resistance is that they think, oh, my blood sugar is fine. My A1C is low. I'm good. And in reality, A1C and blood sugar don't catch up to insulin resistance for like 15, 10 to 15 years. So you yeah. can be flaming insulin resistant and have no idea until you know, 10 years down the road. So I recommend get with a good OBGYN, ask them, or even a physician and, and ask them to rule out PCOS, but take a fasting insulin as well. Yeah, yeah, you recently shared on your stories and then you turned it into a reel, but I had never heard that before. And I thought this was just like the best tidbit ever, like how to tell if you're insulin resistant to so look at your blood work and divide your triglycerides by your HDL. Yes. And if you're above 1.5, then you are insulin resistant. Like. Yep even regardless of your fasting glucose. And that was such an empowering little bit of information. Thank you for that. I've been sharing that with some of my clients. Yeah, it's it's really helpful, especially if you're working with physicians who aren't willing to pull a fasting insulin, is to pull that triglyceride to HDL ratio because it's almost everybody has that blood work, right? And yes. another really fascinating um, thing to know, oh man, I just, it lost my, it completely went out. Um, but yeah, I would second that. Do that. Triglyceride to HDL ratio is great. And I'll use that. Um, oh, and that's what I was going to say. And also understand conventional medicine doesn't mark fasting insulin as abnormal until over 27, which is way too high. Like you need to be, I mean, I've heard anywhere from under 10 to even a physician that I just worked with for under five. And so when you get your, if you get your fasting insulin taken by a physician and they're like, no, you're good. You're under 27. Let's say you're 15. You have insulin resistance and that needs mm -hmm. to be you need to know, understand that just because conventional medicine lab markers said you were fine, it, you're not, um, yeah. if it's that high. Yeah. Okay. So this is all really interesting because basically, even if you don't have any kind of a diagnosis, like you don't have a diagnosis of being insulin resistant or pre-diabetic or anything like that, you don't have a diagnosis with anything hormonally, PCOS, Hashimoto's, like you said, I want to come back to that. But basically, if you're struggling to get pregnant, one of the best things that you can do is check to see if you are insulin resistant, because if you are, those hormones are all interlinked and they're impacting one another. And yep. if you're insulin, if you're insulin resistant, then you may not be ovulating. And that could be why you're struggling to get pregnant. Yeah. 
yeah, I mean, I think you summed it up and same thing with inflammation, um, which, which comes before the chicken or the egg, right. With, with right. insulin and inflammation, they're kind of go hand in hand. So yeah, I think that that's a really, I love to see where people are, um, with infertility, are they inflamed? Do they have insulin resistance? Are they estrogen dominant, which we don't even want to get into right now? Cause that would, that's a whole nother talk, but yes, I think that, that you hit the nail on the head there. Yeah. Thank you. So basically my next question would be like, okay, let's just say that I realized that I am insulin resistant. I really want to do the work to take care of my nutrition, to eat the way that I can do optimally to try to get pregnant. I would be thinking, how perfect do I have to be at this? And how long is this going to take? So yeah. do you have to be like super strict, dedicated, like no slip ups whatsoever to heal your insulin resistance? And then how long will that take? No, you, I don't believe that you have to be perfect. Now, it, it really depends on the degree of damage done, right? So like if someone has done years and years and years of damage to their body, it may take them six months to a year to, to heal and actually get pregnant. And one thing I should say too, um, don't ever hate the healing time. I know it's frustrating um, mm -hmm. and a lot of, it, it's hard to wait, especially if you want a baby and maybe even your time clock, maybe you're a little older, 33 or whatever, 35. And but don't hate the healing because you don't want to bring a baby into that environment either, right? So if you're super insulin resistant or inflamed, that's not an ideal environment to baby for baby to be housed in. But it, it really comes down to, okay, how long is it going to take on, on how much damage is done? And also, like, are you nourished? A lot of women don't understand that they've been taking birth control for, you know, 10 to 15 years and they're, they're nutrient deficient nearly every single vitamin and mineral and so we there's a lot of things that we have to go into before we look at when when someone's getting pregnant like are they nourished with micronutrients vitamin b all of that other stuff have they been on birth control what's their insulin levels like um, i think if it's a relatively mild case of pcos then you could probably see changes really quick and i have had total in my groups about 10 people get pregnant uh, within six months of starting my group. So cool. I consider that a pretty short timeline in yeah. terms of, um, of turnaround as well as just women having cycles. So that's another good indicator that things are working is a lot of women don't have PCOS women don't have cycles or they're really irregular. And you can know things are starting to work out when their cycle starts to become uh, regular and easier to time and consistent and back to back, et cetera. So that's another good indicator. Like you're on the right road. So I don't have an exact time. Um, and then in regards to being perfect, I don't think anyone ever has to be like crazy, radically perfect with their diet. I do think it takes baby steps. And I think if you want to heal insulin resistance quickly, you need to get rid of carbs quickly and for at least a certain degree of time. But there's other things we can use with PCOS, like supplements and mm -hmm. lifestyle changes, like lifting weights and even infrared saunas to help with inflammation and other things like that to kind of assist the process. Yeah. Yeah. So imagine, you know, maybe we have a listener right now and I've known women like this, like women I've worked with young women, like 22 years old, kind of like you, like at a healthy weight, they're in college, they've been diagnosed with PCOS. They don't, they're not getting a period and they're maybe they're not ready to start a family quite yet, but they definitely don't want to take that off the table. And it still feels crushing to be told that even at oh. an age when you're not ready to We still here? Yeah, sorry, your audio went out for a second, but yeah, we're good. Okay, awesome. So my question would be like, imagine that we do have somebody in that situation and their doctor is like, okay, let's get you on metformin, let's get you on birth control. Like, what would be your recommendation to that person? Like, should they take the metformin? Should they take the birth control? Well, um, it's a great question. I would say um, always follow the directions of your doctor, but do your research. So I won't directly, directly say don't take birth control. Um, I will say that you need to know the risk that come along with it. If you plan to get pregnant in a certain degree of time and understand that there's many types of birth control. So your, your only options are not just pills. You can look at like the copper IUD and things like that, that are a little less 
risky when it comes to um, causing micronutrient deficiencies. So that would be my suggestions there. Now, in terms of metformin, I don't necessarily think metformin is a bad drug. In fact, I think it's pretty good in terms of how it acts and what it does in the body, and as well as protective against heart disease and some other things. Um, but I would say if your nutrition isn't on point, that's the number one thing you've got to fix. Those things are those things can help. Um, birth control, not so much. Um, but metformin certainly can. But it's important to understand that they're just Band-Aids. And if you don't actually fix what's causing the problem, you're either going to run into issues when you're actually pregnant um, or you're going to really never get there, right? And so, um, and one thing to understand, too, that people don't always get is um, – it's really important to start preparing for baby early and making sure that your where you carry baby is in the, the top health that it can be in just to prevent complications and make sure baby gets the nutrients and minerals and vitamins and all the things that that baby needs. So um, to answer your question, I would say follow your doctor's advice, obviously, but make sure you understand the risks that come along with birth control because um, it, it is not risk free and it's got a lot of things attached to it that um, most women are never educated about and yeah. most women don't know Um that, that, that it can cause essentially. Yeah, definitely. So can being on birth control for a long time, even if you don't have any like other health diagnoses, can that impact your fertility and how easy it is for you to get pregnant and, and why? Well, yes, absolutely. Um, and that's the, one of the third forms of PCOS that we see is birth control, essentially like induced PCOS. And it's where your hormone, because birth control impacts your hormones. Essentially what birth control does is it tells your body that it's pregnant. And so that's where you stop with the ovulation and things of that nature. Now that's, that can cause some problems, especially if you are on birth control for years and years and years and years. And so one common thing that people think is like, no, I still have a cycle. Obviously I'm ovulating just because you're having birth control withdrawal bleeds doesn't mean that you're having a natural cycle. And so I think that's really important to understand too, is like birth control is not a natural process that your body is in. Um, which is why I suggest looking into other things like the copper IUD and things of that natural family planning, I think is great too. So, um, Yes, it can absolutely cause problems with your fertility. I heard an OBGYN on a podcast say one time, plan um, for each year you're on birth control, plan for at least one month for hormonal regulation. So if you were yeah. on birth control for 15 years, give yourself at least 15 months to get back to harmonized hormones. That is so crazy to think about because mm -hmm. so many women literally have been on the pill for, for that long. And to yeah. think like, they just think like, okay, yeah, as soon as I, you know, stop taking this pill, like the next month I'm going to be pregnant and it can be crushing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, I think again, I really think women are done a disservice about birth control. It's kind of just thrown at a lot of women, especially PCOS women, and they're not educated on it at all, at all of, of the risk of the benefits of what it does to your hormones, of how it makes you insulin resistant, of all the things that it can do uh, to, to a woman's body. Yeah, tell us a little bit more about Hashimoto's because it's probably something that people have heard about but maybe are not the most familiar with. And what are some of the signs and symptoms and basically how does keto help to heal that? Yeah, so Hashimoto's is an autoimmune thyroid disease. And another interesting stat is a lot of women are like, I'm, I'm just hypothyroid. I don't have Hashimoto's. Well, the majority of people with hypothyroid actually have Hashimoto's and it's causing their hypothyroidism. So if you are a hypothyroid and you've never been checked for Hashimoto's, you need to. And the reason why is because there's some dietary and lifestyle modifications we can make um, to help put you into remission. So Hashimoto's, again, can really affect a lot of things. It can affect weight, so you can gain weight rapidly. You definitely can see a lot of the same thyroid effects, the loss of hair, the irritability, the lack of energy, the problem sleeping, depression, the typical things that come with hypothyroidism. And um, Hashimoto's is also really common among women with childbearing age and after pregnancy. Um, and again, it's something that's happened a lot more a lot more nowadays, which there's a lot of theories as to why between environmental toxins and toxins in our food and things like that. Um, Hashimoto's itself can affect fertility. So, um, yeah, I hope that answered your question. Was there other, what did you say? Yeah, I was going to ask like, where is the Hashimoto's coming from? Is insulin resistance causing Hashimoto's or does it just happen to be conflated? 
not necessarily. It definitely can make the problem worse. Uh, it, a lot of things can cause Hashimoto. So they're not always sure, like, what genetics, uh, what is it triggered by environmental toxins like mold? That's one of the reasons they think mine was personally um, hmm. activated is because I was exposed to black mold. And so um, they think that that potentially led it up. Um, again, it can it can be caused by stress and trauma, like if you have a baby or, you know, uh, or in a very severe car wreck or in a long period of grief. So there's a lot of things that they think can cause it. But again, it's essentially an auto, it is an autoimmune issue. And so, um, but the good news is, is you can get it put in remission. And keto is a great way to use, a great thing to use because you're not going to be eating a lot of the foods that cause issues with Hashimoto's. Like gluten is one of the top ones that causes problems with Hashimoto's. Dairy to a degree, which I really do recommend most people kind of limit dairy when they are following keto. Um, but yeah, so I think keto is a great way to kind of use as an elimination diet per se to help heal and put Hashimoto's into remission. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we kind of like skirted with this a little bit before, but like there are so many different ways to do keto and for people who are just looking into it, it can feel really overwhelming because you know, people are getting into like diet wars over like the right way to do keto or whatever. But I always tell people like, it depends on what your goal is. So, you know, people can definitely lose weight by doing different styles of keto, but specifically for the goal of getting pregnant, I know we talked before about making sure that you're eliminating inflammation, but what way would you recommend for people to do keto when their goal is to get pregnant? Should they be focusing more on high fat rather than high protein and, you know, avoiding um, keto products? Like what would be your recommendations for someone trying to get pregnant? Yeah. And this is a tricky question because it really depends. Like, is the woman cycling? Is she ovulating? Where, like, I guess I could say it depends on an individual basis. Another thing that we have to take into consideration is the week before you actually have a cycle. I do in some people think that carbs are helpful um, just with the progesterone, what's happening with progesterone. So it's, I, I would say it depends on exactly what's going on, how insulin resistance the individual is and really looking at the cycle and if they're even having a cycle. Um, so I think women in keto specifically for fertility, you have to be pretty careful um, because, and careful and targeted and strategic because it could differ very wildly for everyone. Again, depending on what hormones are messed up, what estrogen and progesterone looks like, are their androgens just sky high through the roof and are they actually cycling? Again, I want to go back to carbs are sometimes helpful for progesterone and helping have a healthy cycle. So I would say focusing on healthy fats, um, obviously I'm a big fan of protein and that's essential for baby, uh, especially, I mean, through the whole, the whole thing of, um, having a child protein is, is key. So I really encourage my clients to get plenty of vegetables and low glycemic fruits, berries, raspberries, things of that nature, lots of healthy fat and protein. Um, that is, uh, I, I guess you could get Mediterranean style ketogenic diet. I don't love a lot of the processed products because they have a lot of artificial flavors and dyes and, uh, seed oils and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I love uh, omega-3 fatty acids. I love fatty fish and olive oil, especially in my pregnant women. There's also supplements we can use too with PCOS that can be really helpful to bring that insulin resistance down and help with um, ovulating and getting things regular again. Inositol, berberine, those types of things um, can be can be super helpful. Yeah. Okay. So can you tell us a little bit more about inositol and berberine and what those things are doing? Yeah, they just support hormones. So, and I mean, inositol, I could go on for days about how good it is in terms, I mean, people who aren't trying to get pregnant can be on inositol. Menopause, it's really good for perimenopause. Inositol is a great supplement. Um, berberine is, is insulin resistant. It helps with insulin. So essentially there's a lot of research that shows a berberine is as effective, if not more effective than metformin. So berberine, um, one thing about berberine though, you don't want to be on it long-term because it can cause some damage to the liver, but, um, berberine short-term, um, using for the whole point to help someone get pregnant can be really helpful. Um, other ones, vitamin D, uh, essential, getting out in the sun, taking vitamin D if you're low, maybe even getting a shot of vitamin D if you're really low. Um, 
there's there's several and what i do with my clients is i look at exactly what's going on hormonally and prescribe su supplements based on that information but yeah it yeah. essentially just supports the whole ovulatory process either directly or indirectly through hormonal harmonization i guess you could say yeah yeah so one thing that i see floating around a lot is that people will say that you shouldn't be in long-term ketosis because it's a stress on your body yeah and um, you know, when we think about getting pregnant, we don't want our body to be too stressed out or we might not get pregnant. So like, what would you say to that? Like how, how does the pros of keto outweigh maybe the, the cons there? Yeah. And I, again, I think this is a relatively individualized situation. Like is the client or patient or woman, does she already have abnormally high cortisol levels? Is her cortisol not doing things that it should during the day? So again, I would look at what's going on hormonally to see, okay, yeah, this person is not a good candidate. Um, now, in regards to people saying that ketosis causes stress, um, I have some disagreements with that. Uh, I do think for This being in strict ketosis, uh, especially while you're pregnant, isn't necessary. I think you can absolutely lower insulin and um, and have a safe pregnancy and lose weight if you need to after pregnancy using keto, but not necessarily being like very rigid and like I can never eat another carb. Again, I don't think carbs are the devil, um, but I do think that there can be some metabolic flexibility depending on how fat adapted you are with the carbohydrates. Um, but I will say pregnancy is a delicate balance, right? You've got to um, really listen to your body and also understand people always think that like you don't eat any carbs with keto, but really like you're eating quite a few with the vegetables and the fruits and things like that. So I really, I think looking at labs and listening to your body are key when you're dealing with someone that's trying to get pregnant with keto. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. So like once you do get pregnant and you've been eating keto, like would you recommend any dietary changes from what people have been doing? So yeah, good question. Hotly debated. So mm -hmm. one thing you have to understand and people watching is obviously you can't do research like this on pregnant women because it's unethical, right? Yeah. So there's not a lot of research out there on pregnancy and full on ketosis. There is some, um, especially in like women that are using keto for epilepsy or like very severe treatment or very, uh, severe conditions. And, um, I, I, I heard an OBGYN, a famous one in this space say, uh, your body's not going to allow you to get pregnant. If it feels safe, it's not going to allow you to get pregnant if it does not feel safe. So if yes. you're eating a diet or you're participating in a lifestyle that is not conducive for a healthy baby, your body is not going to go through the ovulatory process and allow you to get pregnant. And so my thought and what I think uh, and what I personally did is that if you got pregnant in ketosis and doing keto is stick with it. Now, if that means one day you want to eat a sweet potato or maybe one day you want an apple or two, go for it. I don't think fruit and I don't think complex carbs are going to be what causes problems in the long run, right? So the, the what causes people problems is the chips and the bread and the cake and the sweets and the soda and all of that. It's not like the fourth of sweet potato that you ate for Thanksgiving, right? Mm -hmm. And so I tell people, and what I did, I was a pretty, I would say I was about 85% pregnant. No, I was 100% pregnant. 85% <laughs> keto during my pregnancy. Um, and I felt great. And, and you know what, they always scare you to death at the beginning. Hey, you've got PCOS. You're at a very high risk for gestational diabetes and a giant baby and like all this stuff. And I was like, okay, I get it. And not even close. I mean, my blood sugars were so great. I wasn't, I had a great fasting insulin. I was, I was in and out of ketosis cause I did have some fruit as I felt like I wanted it. Um, not often, but I did. And, um, I had a perfectly healthy pregnancy. So I think it differs from individual and at like, are you obese and are you pregnant? Then you probably need to be a little bit more careful. And so, um, as long as you're giving that baby all the nourishment it needs, you don't have to stress. Yeah. Yeah. So I was going to ask like, what did you do while you were pregnant? Um, so you said you were about 85% keto. Were you eating yeah. things like, like sweet potatoes and fruit as much as you wanted, or did you still try to be intentional with it? Yeah, I definitely stayed low carb. I just feel better and I'm a better human being when I'm low carb. Like I function better. I think better. 
I am just better at life. And so I stayed keto or low carb my entire pregnancy. The only time I had an issue was in the first trimester and I ate an entire pan of Boston market cornbread, which was totally like, I was so pregnant. My hormones were raging. I was like, I just want some cornbread. And I've never felt sicker in my life. I was sick for days after the cornbread incident. But after that, I did stayed really low carb. And anyone who's pregnant is laughing or has been pregnant because you know what that's like in the first trimester. There's no stopping you. Um, But yeah, I had plenty of protein. I prioritized protein at every meal. Even if I didn't feel like eating, I would make a smoothie with collagen. Protein is, is again, essential for building a baby. And then my second most important was was healthy fats and um, and meat. I ate meat for my pregnancy. I never had an issue with anemia. My blood levels were great. Um, I had great iron stores. All of that was great. So um, yeah, I prioritized protein and then I did healthy fats. I ate vegetables as I felt like eating vegetables. Again, anyone who's been pregnant knows like sometimes things just, nope, you're not feeling it. So yeah, and I continued to work out my entire pregnancy, and I was back to pre-pregnancy weight within, I would probably say, about a month and a half, two months, and I felt great. Honestly, postpartum was great because I took such good care of my body before the baby. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Um, so what about women who, because I see this happen a lot, they'll be like, yeah, I was keto, I was low-carb, and then my hormones, like, I, I couldn't I couldn't stomach anything, and all I ate was crackers, like, during the first yeah part of my pregnancy. So like, what would you say about nausea? Like, are there some keto foods that you would recommend? Like you mentioned smoothies. That was a really good idea. Do you have any other tips? Yeah, I, I felt the nausea for the first trimester. And so I would do smoothies. I would definitely do like, if I didn't feel like eating anything, I would make sure there was collagen in my coffee um, or just something that I was drinking. I did uh, get a couple of like keto crackers. I made some seed keto crackers. Um, I would go, I uh, occasionally got a couple of loaves of and I forgot the name of it now, but one of the better keto breads that's not made with gluten or anything, uh, it has a little elephant on it. I can't remember the name of it, but, um, so I would look for keto alternatives if it was something that I really like, um, really wanted, but that was rare. And, um, I think when you're, when you're properly nourishing your body, a lot of the cravings don't happen as bad as someone who is not, and who's having a lot of blood sugar fluctuations. So, I think finding a keto alternative, finding something, just making sure you're getting enough protein is like, is key. Yeah, definitely. I was keto um, for years before I got pregnant. And this was five years ago um, when I had my daughter, but I stayed keto for my entire pregnancy and postpartum. Um, I can't say that I felt as great as you did. um, So I want to talk to you about postpartum, Um, but I felt great during my entire pregnancy. I did have the nausea and like, I remember specifically my midwife told me, um, eat an avocado when you feel nauseous because the nausea is actually coming from your hormones being out of whack and um, like basically insulin is like a dip in insulin or a dip in your blood sugar is causing the nausea. And so she would tell me to eat an avocado because it was a good balance of um, protein and fat and carbs. And yeah. so that's what I did. And I would just like cut an avocado in half and I did not want to eat that avocado, but I would just eat it like with a spoon and yeah. sure enough, it would always make me feel better. Dry roasted edamame was another lifesaver for me because yeah. it was salty and crunchy and it kind of just reminded me of popcorn. And I have to say, I probably did eat too many low carb wraps with like peanut butter and jelly at the time because like yeah. I could not stomach eggs. I couldn't stomach chicken, anything yeah. that was normal for like the first six weeks. Yeah, it was hard. Yeah, the, the first, I mean, the first trimester is rough. People don't understand, but it, it is. I, I, I mean, I, yeah, it's, it's, it's a little rough, but I, I felt so much better in the second trimester. But yeah, you kind of just survive that first one and, and pray that your baby's getting all the nutrients it needs, you know? Yeah, yeah. Did you struggle with um, edema, like swollen feet and ankles and stuff? I didn't. So that was another blessing. Um, and I, and I attribute it to being pretty low carb, uh, keto the whole time, but no, I had no, I mean, towards the end I had maybe like a trace amount, but nobody from the outside would know. I only knew because I was in my body, but really the only thing that I did have really through pregnancy was the congestion. I had a lot of like nasal congestion, almost the whole pregnancy. So that was a little rough, but, um, other than that, I didn't have swelling. My blood pressure was great. Um, again, my sugars were great. Everything was great, um, through it. Um, and then I had my fair share of struggles in postpartum, but I don't, I don't think postpartum's easy for anyone really, but definitely on the food front, I felt better. 
through that. Yeah. Yeah. Would you recommend any changes um, to the way you've been eating once you are postpartum? Like what is the most important thing to be prioritizing from a nutrition front to kind of like help your body heal? Yeah. Well, protein again is still really super important in postpartum. Um, obviously getting a wide variety of nutrients because you've just gone through a really stressful, I mean, pregnancy is really stressful on the body and birth, having a baby is really stressful on the body. So like give yourself a ton of grace because it is not an easy bounce back, but protein again, kind of the same stuff, healthy fats. I think making sure you're getting vitamin D is crucial. I think making sure you're continuing I would say continuing on your prenatals is a good idea, just kind of a, a, as a helpful thing, um, but not stressing about losing the weight quickly and all of that and just making sure you're nourishing your body, um, the, all the vitamins and minerals, making sure you're paying attention to your milk supply too if you're breastfeeding because, uh, you know, you've got to eat to make breast milk too. So that can zap you in postpartum yeah. too. I think all of the above. Totally. One thing that always felt really weird to me, and I eventually stopped doing it because it's the conventional advice, but like, what do you think? Do you need to eat every time you breastfeed? Like, even if it's the middle of the night and you're waking up, do you need to eat something? No, no. And I never like, I, and it may be different for people that are um, having issues with their supply. I don't really think it is. Um, but no, I mean, I think that that's really like over, um, emphasize like you said is like commonly said is like you need to eat all the time and snack all the time I did not find that I still probably stuck to you know two meals and maybe a snack a day and was just fine and am still breastfeeding and have a perfectly fine milk supply um yeah. so no I don't think getting up and snacking at two in the morning is helpful for anyone ever uh, based on your circadian rhythms maybe uh someone who's very hypoglycemic like diabetes or something but um, no, I don't think snacking around the clock is helpful, um, for much. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that I really struggled with, um, well, I won't say it's a huge struggle. It sounds like such a place of privilege to say it, but I gained probably about 35 pounds when I was pregnant and I lost 25 of it literally within the first week after giving birth. Yeah. So I yeah. was like, sweet, I'm only 10 pounds away from my goal. But then the longer that I breastfed, um, I gained like another 10 pounds. Yeah. So now I'm 20 pounds from my pre-pregnancy weight and I pretty much stayed there for like yeah. a year while I was breastfeeding. And it seemed like no matter what I did, and of course, like in a sense, I wasn't beating myself up for it, but it was frustrating, you know, because yeah. it didn't, it didn't seem to make any sense. And I'm, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on what are the hormonal things happening there that might actually, because everybody says like, oh, just breastfeed, you'll lose so much weight, yada, yada. Like, are there any hormonal reasons why you're actually, why your body would be holding on to wait while you're breastfeeding or postpartum. Yeah. Well, one of the ones is your progesterone drops when you essentially birth the placenta, like drops, like, I mean, goes to the, the pit drops, which can leave estrogen high. And so essentially you've created estrogen dominance. So which they have linked to postpartum depression, mind you. So sometimes that can be the reason we know with estrogen dominance, a lot of people have estrogen dominance, not just postpartum women. And that in itself can cause some problems with, with losing weight. But I think there's a lot to low testosterone. There's a lot of things that you could look at with women um, that, that maybe even just like, looking at their their movement like a lot of women now they're taking care of a baby so they're not as likely to go out and exercise i think there's so many factors you can look at but hormonally i think that's one you can't ignore is the the sharp decline in progesterone which can make you essentially estrogen dominant until your body can start making progesterone better essentially yeah is there anything that we can do to help speed that up well you know again, supporting yourself with good nutrition, making sure you sleep. I think people really, um, don't, don't understand the importance of good sleep and little stress on women's hormones. We are far too busy. Adrenal fatigue is another thing that can happen. It, think about what's happening. You've got this screaming little infant who keeps you up at all hours of the night and you're constantly having to wake up, feed them. You're not eating properly. You may be drinking way too much caffeine. You may be stressed out because you've got to go back to work and you've got to figure out pumping. All the things can happen and you can just blow cortisol through the roof. Um, and so that's another area that I, I guess I should have mentioned too, but making sure you're eating, making sure you're sleeping and making sure you're eliminating as much stress as physically possible during that 
time so that your body can have a chance to catch up and a chance to recuperate. And I think there can be supplements, but you obviously have to be really careful with supplements and make sure you're doing that in the, uh, you know, under the supervision of a physician, especially if you are breastfeeding. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, there's really not anything super specific, but make just making sure you're being mindful of what's happening in life. Yeah. Totally. Like I sleep like nine hours a night. Like yeah. and for me, that feels awesome. And I think yeah. back to when I had a baby, like I, maybe it was like last weekend, I actually stayed up way past my bedtime. I went to go see a comedian with my sister and yeah. I probably got five hours of sleep that night. I felt horrible the next day. Like yeah. my anxiety was through the roof yep. and I just had so much compassion for myself in that moment because I was like, literally this is hormones like and to think of how i felt for so long after my daughter was born i just had so much compassion for myself because sleep like is no joke there's a reason why it's literally a form of torture <laughs> to deprive somebody of yeah sleep. i mean and not only that but when you when you lose sleep like that your blood sugar goes to that of a pre-diabetic what is it like five hours get less than five hours or something your blood sugar goes through the roof cortisol elevates ghrelin which makes you hungry elevates rapidly so you're just like a walking hot mess when you don't sleep yeah. i mean you're hungry you're frustrated like you're it causes more stress which can cause problems later so yeah sleep i think sleep is one of the most undervalued healing lifestyle you know things that we can do yeah for sure so like i wanted to ask you from a postpartum perspective i mean you're in the middle of it um, still breastfeeding, like, yeah. do you think it's possible to thrive when you're postpartum? Or do you think that we all just need to like lower the bar a little bit? Like, what's your opinion? I think both and right. I think everyone's postpartum journey is going to look a little different. Like, and, and I think with social media, I think it's really easy to like, look at someone else and be like, Oh, my postpartum should look like their postpartum or like, why do they have it all together? And why can't I get anything together? And I think that's a really dangerous slippery slope because everyone's in a different situation and you don't see behind closed doors. So I think you can absolutely thrive in postpartum, but I definitely think you need to make sure you're being wise about your expectations, right? Postpartum is not the time to like conquer the world, which was a hard reality for me to understand. Like I had just started my business, you know, when I literally, when I got pregnant was when I like launched my business. And so I have been either pregnant or postpartum my entire journey. And so I'm thinking I'm going to do all these things. And I realized, oh man, Temple, like you're the number one thing your job is right now is to take care of your baby and like love that baby, make a strong attachment and take care of yourself so that you can take care of the rest of your family. So I say that to say you can thrive, but I think you need to figure out your own flow. And I also think that you need to ask for help if you need it. So like, if you think, you know, maybe you're six, seven, eight, nine months down the road and your hormones are really struggling, go get some help, get them tested, see what's going on. Like, is there things going on? Did Hashimoto's creep in? Like, Make sure you're on top of the ball, because I think if you take postpartum from a proactive stance, you're going to feel much better. And instead of trying to constantly like clamor your way out of issues. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, looking back, I really wish that I had known more of what I know today when I was postpartum five years ago, even though I had been keto for a long time. I don't think I was eating enough protein because back then I was still doing more of like a classic ketogenic diet. I think I definitely needed more protein. I needed yeah. to be taking electrolytes for sure. I wasn't taking them every day. Now I'm drinking like two element packets a day and feeling yeah. awesome. Yeah. So like those are some things that I would, I wish that I knew like, yeah, I needed to go get my hormones tested for sure. Oh. So like when somebody's thinking about that, like, how do you do that? Do you just go to your regular primary care physician? Do you have to see a functional doctor? How do you get your hormones tested? So personally, just from my experience, I, uh, I typically stick with like either DOs or functional medicine physicians. I see a great functional medicine physician where I live who, um, who b basically takes like 15 vials of blood and runs every lab in the book, which I love. And she, um, has caught some underlying hormonal issues. So one thing that happened that I didn't share is after my daughter was born about five days after she had, uh, like a life like a critical life issue with her lungs and had to be like basically not life flighted, but transported to a high level NICU in Tampa, which I'm not in Tampa, but, um, and there was a, a month of very, a very, very high stress. And so I basically right. blew my adrenals like completely out. And so I knew, um, other than that postpartum was good, but I, 
with this month, I've, I've started to feel some things that just weren't normal. So I go to get my labs done and she did find a pretty significant estrogen dominance issue, which wasn't surprising because of the issue with the NICU and all that. And so I recommend going to a functional medicine doctor and someone who knows what they're doing, but also someone who's worked with, with pregnancy and postpartum and that can help um, navigate supplementation, who can help navigate lifestyle changes and um, really just really like a root cause perspective versus like, oh, maybe you should just jump back on the pill. That'll probably regulate everything kind of thing. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that would yeah. be my answer there. Yeah. I see we have a question here. They're asking if you have any recommendations for doctors in the Tampa area. Are you in Tam the Tampa area now? You're in Clearwater, right? Yeah, I'm in Clearwater, so just outside of Tampa. So I really love Dr. Lionheart. She's at Peaks of Health, which is located in Largo, Florida. So she's great. Look her up online. She's got a ton of certifications. She's a physician and incredibly wise, but it's at Peaks of Health in Largo. Yeah, that's great, great. Um, yeah. I, I really wish that I had seen a functional doctor at the time because I just went and talked to my regular OBGYN and said what I was experiencing. And you know, she was like, well, maybe you should go on like an antidepressant or something. And I, I really didn't want to. And I just kind of toughed it out. But it was, it was right. hard. It was, yeah. yeah, like I really put myself through so much more than what I needed yeah. to go through because I didn't know what I didn't know, you know. So yeah. I hope that um, some of what we're sharing here today can help some people. Yeah. So um, I know that you have adopted a little mm -hmm. girl and I'm wondering if you would share with us a little bit more about your adoption journey. And if anybody is listening and you know, they're, they're working on their fertility, but they're also considering the adoption journey, but have no idea where to start. Do you have any um, tips and advice for newbies? Yeah. So my three-year-old um, Ellie is adopted from foster care. So she, um, we, we didn't go through a private adoption or anything like that. Like we um, were fostering children and she ended up in our home and we knew immediately that we wanted to adopt her. Um, I guess, you know, the advice there is, I mean, it's hard. Adoption's really hard. It, it, it's especially if you adopt a child that's a little older and not adopt a child as a baby. There already, there's going to be some behaviors. There's going to be some things that are uncontrollable, um, and you also have no idea what that child has been through. So, like my daughter was um, not not breastfed. Probably didn't have very much prenatal care. Like was born pretty much like there's all the things. And so I think that you just have to go in it with an open mind that like, I'm going to love this child just like I would love any other child that I had or adopted and, um, just be really open to, um, changes in behavior and, and really it's just, it's, it's, it's such a great experience adoption. And I was adopted myself. So I have a really big heart for adoption. And so I really would encourage anyone, um, if you are thinking about adoption, I'm more than happy to answer any of the tough questions like, you know, do you love the child the same as your biological children? Anything like that um, through DM. So you guys feel, feel free to DM me any uncomfortable questions that aren't, uh, you know, askable, I guess you could say on here. But uh, again, adoption brings a lot of hope and you basically take a child who may not have had a great upbringing and may have ended up somewhere where they didn't um, need to be and, and take them in as your own. And I think it, it is um, just a small way that we can give back to um, to children and, and honestly, uh, and honestly love, love them and show them love. So yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Um, so for somebody who's like, okay, so this, this is me, I'll just be honest. So like, I thought about adoption, right? But then I'm like, the foster care system completely freaks me out because of the idea that like I might bond and attach to this child and then lose them. And yeah. so for me, I think in terms of like, well, it would have to be, it would have to be private adoption because I don't want to run that risk and like open myself up to that. Like what kind of advice would you give to somebody that's kind of thinking that? Yeah, this is something that I think everyone wrestles with when they, um, when they, when they think about foster care and they think about getting involved in foster care. And I'm, and I'm not gonna lie and say that that's an easy part of foster care. It's not. We've had to let go of a lot of kids that we would have adopted in a heartbeat. And what mm -hmm. I usually tell people is like, you have to understand that you're the adult and you're able to like logically reason what's going on. Imagine what a child is going through in terms of like they have no home. 
they've been taken from their family. They're with strangers. They're completely not used to anything. So it was kind of a, a moment that my husband and I said, we'll have like, well, if we as believers and as parents of um, an adult, if we can't handle that burden, who can? And so I think it's like, yes, there's absolutely heartbreak when you have to send a kid back and you, you really do love these children like you would love your own kid and i'm not going to say that's an easy part of foster care because it's absolutely not there's no like oh it's fine you just let them go and you don't feel anything towards these children and you do you feel a lot and it's heartbreaking and it's hard but the journey with them is so rewarding and learning and and giving them a home and a place that they feel loved and they feel safe is more rewarding than um, I think the damage done by losing them and you grow and you learn and you, and you, you learn that, okay, these children aren't mine, um, but they're going to be mine for this time being. And I'm going to love them like they're mine. Um, and I'm hopefully going to teach them at least one thing they can take into adulthood and, and one thing that they can learn and be, um, be a better person doing. So it's hard. I, I mean, I, there's no easy answer to that because it sucks. And I can remember, like I said, multiple children get, sending them home that we would have, like I said, adopted in a heartbeat. Um, but the journey with them was so rewarding that we would do it all over again. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. And thank you for sharing your story. And I hope that people will take you up on that and DM yeah. you if they have any more questions about that. So, um, my last question for you before, um, I would love for you to share some in more information about how people can connect with you. But, yeah. um, this question is kind of like, maybe like, a sensitivity question. So like for those of us who have someone in our lives who is struggling with infertility or rather probably subfertility is probably a better word for it. Um, yeah. They're struggling to get pregnant. Um, and we know like, oh my gosh, keto could totally help this person. Like, do you recommend that you tell the person like, hey, you should try keto or should you just keep your mouth shut unless they ask you directly? Like what's kind of your, your thoughts on that? So I, I am always, and maybe this is like a personality thing, but I will always tell somebody the truth, even if it may like not hurt their feelings. Cause I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings, but like, if I believe something can help, I would feel very guilty and convicted if I didn't say it immediately. Like, Hey, you have PCOS. It's insulin resistant related PCOS. Like you need to go on keto if you're trying to get pregnant. And so I think that you should um, you should tell them if you don't feel comfortable in saying it just outright and upfront, send them someone like, like Jess or like me, send them our Instagram information or whatever and say like, Hey, this person really helped my friend do whatever. So I think you should be honest in this case, because oftentimes people that are struggling with, like you said, subfertility, um, are the best clients because they are so willing and so wanting to have a child that they will do anything um, that it takes to have a baby. And I totally get it. And so I think that that's the first thing you should do is, is send them it. Be honest. Be open. Like if you believe it can help. And it's not a magic pill. Keto is not a magic pill. But if you want the best chances to get pregnant pregnant naturally, you should absolutely do it. It also can help your chances of going through a successful IVF cycle as well as Clomid and stuff, which is a whole nother aspect we could talk about. So I would say be open and honest. Yeah. Yeah. I know that, um, you know, a lot of people might be worried that how they would make somebody feel because like, yeah. you know, like when, when you're going through something really hard and then all the people come out of the woodwork with like their advice and they're sending you the book recommendations and yada, 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 it can feel really overwhelming. And, you know, personally, I would be worried. That's why I wanted to ask you this question because personally I would be worried like, oh my gosh, am I going to make my friend feel like it's her fault that she's not getting pregnant because of the way, if she would just eat a little bit healthier then she wouldn't have this problem. Like I would yeah. never want to make anybody feel that way, but you bring up a really good point, which is that they want to get pregnant, you know? And so was that, did you ever have anybody send it to you while you were trying to get pregnant and you didn't know where to, where to turn or did you just discover it on your own or? Well, I think also you have to be like sensitive to relational equity. Like if you don't know the person from Adam and they come up to you and like, Oh, I'm infertile, which that would seem weird in itself to me. But I right. think it can go about helping depending on your level of relational equity that you have with that person. I had people say stuff. Um, yeah. And, and the, the difference is, is I think that I really would go and like do heavy digging. Like I, I rarely take something that someone tells me to do just kind of like, as like, Oh, okay. I trust, 
now some people yes but majority if they tell me to do something i'm gonna go do my own research and make sure it's actually what i should be doing um but i do i, I do think you have to be sensitive to that i also think you have to be sensitive to like the right timing the right moment and and things of that nature and and make sure that that you are very loving in the way that you help and so but again i really do believe um if you really truly love someone and you really care about them and you know there's something a solution that could work i think you do them a disservice if you don't at least bring it to the forefront of their mind yeah yeah i really appreciate you sharing your perspective as somebody that has gone through it and as as somebody that helps people specifically yeah. with this so yeah. um i would love for you to share more about how people can work with you and i know you have an exciting new online course so tell us about that ah. tell us all the things yeah. So you guys know where you find me on Instagram. I'm at the ketogenic nutritionist on every platform. So TikTok, y'all go, go follow me on TikTok. Uh, regrettably on TikTok, but I'm there. Um, no, I love it. It's fine. Uh, Instagram, obviously I'm on Spotify. I'm on all the uh, Apple podcasts. All that stuff is the ketogenic nutritionist. So find me there. Um, yeah, I'm launching a course at the end of January. Um, well, beginning rather, but yeah, you can, learn more about that by following me on Instagram. And, and as always with anyone, you guys do not um, hesitate to shoot me a message on Instagram. I'm, I'm not always super responsive like day of, but I will get back to you, especially if it's um, something keto related. So please write me, follow me all the things. And um, I'm, I'm really thankful again, just that you asked me on today. Oh my gosh. I'm so grateful that you made the time, especially because I know you got your hands full over there with your baby. Yeah. And um, I see, are you in your car? Yeah, I'm in my car. I'm actually at my husband's church right now. So, or our church, I should say, um, just waiting to pick up a kiddo. So, you know, all the things, but I, it's an honor and I love doing these because it's nice to meet people in this space, you know? Yeah, definitely. And you guys, please go follow um, Temple. She is just such a wealth of information and I love her reels. They're very entertaining the way that you <laughs> present the information. I think they call it uh, edutainment nowadays. <laughs> You are a master of edutainment. I love it. Thank you. Thank you. You're sweet. Thank you. I enjoy that. Okay. Thanks, Temple. I hope you have a fantastic rest of your week. Yeah, you too, Jess. We'll talk soon. <laughs> Bye. Bye.